Well, thank you for that. Uh, again, Karabu, a generous introduction. Um, I bring greetings from Brackenhurst Baptist Church, and uh, it is a joy to be with you on this Lord's Day to sing of what God has done, to hear from His Word, what He has done, and to just enjoy the fellowship with you all. So it's a great joy on my uh, side, and I, I pray that uh, our time in God's Word this morning would be encouraging, uplifting, and uh, giving all glory to God. Um, in the meantime, can you please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. Well, what are all men and women promised in this life? What awaits each and every person sitting here today? Augustine of Hippo, a famous church father, in his confessions he writes this, quote, Life is a misery, and I do not know when death may come. If it steals upon me, shall I be in a fit state to leave this world? Well, our culture and our consciences would like to deny it, but death awaits us all. Death is promised to every person who has ever lived and whoever will live. Death makes us uncomfortable. We do all that we can to avoid it and hide its effects. We exercise and we eat well so as to prolong life. We even beautify death's hastening with makeup and surgery. And when death finally does sting, we cover such persons up in boxes laced with decorations, or we might burn the deceased so that the terrible sight of death is engulfed in flames never to be seen again. Death awaits us all. What is the Christian response to death? Have you thought about death? Have you considered that one day you will die? In one sense, many cultures and religions wish to butter death up, suggesting that it is merely a pathway into the next stage of existence. Ideas of reincarnation and like, uh, other ideas like that embellish death and its frightful reality. However, as those who cling to God's word for life, death is given an explanation. In God's word, we're told why death exists. Death is the result of humanity's rebellion against God. That is because God created Adam and Eve to enjoy sweet fellowship with Him and with one another for eternity. And as God's image bearers in God's garden, they were to reflect and to expand the glory of God throughout the earth. But of course, as the Bible tells us, Adam and Eve wandered from this initial task, seeking instead to establish their own image with themselves as God. And so death is a consequence of disobedience to a good and a loving creator. Separation from the author of life necessarily means that we will be separated from life, the life that He gives. And so the question that has plagued humanity from the very beginning since this fall is the same question that Job asks in chapter 14. If a man dies, shall he live again? Perhaps this is a question you have asked. Shall I live again? Well, friends, the good news is that God is not indifferent to death. He is not a God who has left us to our own devices. We are not called to triumph over death ourselves, and that's because we cannot. Instead, the New Testament emphatically states that the creation that was plunged under the curse of God will one day be made new. You see, the direction of history doesn't march towards an intermediate state in heaven where we are sitting on clouds and plucking harps. No, instead, the direction of history of humanity moves in the direction of a new creation. As the Apostle John saw in his revelation from Jesus, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
My question to you this morning is, is that your hope? All things made new. Is that where your hope lies? It seems that if creation, if a new creation is to take place, then the one who originally created must establish this reality. We can no more make creation new than we can create in the first place. Well, the good news of Jesus Christ is that this is exactly what has happened. So if you are in Mark chapter 5, please drop your eyes down to verse 21, which is where we will be spending our time this morning. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. You see, the Gospel of Mark signals the arrival of the one who is life. Jesus is the one who has come to establish God's reign and God's rule upon the earth, as it was in the Garden of Eden. And to do so is nothing less than setting up and making creation new, and our lives included, new. One of Mark's main purposes in his Gospel is to show Jesus as powerful, Mark's portrait of Jesus also resembles Adam, the first human, just as that first man was created to rule and to shape the earth on behalf of God, so Jesus is depicted as the one who actually completes this task. On two separate occasions, we hear a voice from heaven acknowledging Jesus' authority as the Son of God, both at his baptism and his transfiguration. Even the unclean spirits recognize Jesus for who he is, declaring that he is the Son of God. He has the authority to restore health. And in chapter 2 of Mark, Jesus makes the crazy, daring promise that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And in the events directly preceding our text this morning, Jesus has the authority and the power over nature itself by calming a storm with just a word. And right after that, he has the power over a legion of demons which he casts into a herd of pigs. But Mark is not done. He's not finished showing that Jesus is powerful, that Jesus has authority. And so if you want the big idea for our text this morning, what, what, what are we looking at in Mark chapter 5? The big idea is this, that Jesus has come as the second and greater Adam, and that he has come to exercise his kingship, his power over disease, over death, and thereby, by doing so, he is pushing back and reversing the effects of the fall brought about by the first Adam. So that's our main idea this morning. We're going to see this, that in the resuscitation of a young Jewish girl, the hopes of a new creation are put on display for us to see. It's here where we see Jesus as both Lord of disease and death. What is, however, a very uh, important but secondary idea from this text is the role of faith. And so it is through the lens of faith that we will approach this text, and we're going to do so under three headings. The first is faith's request. The second is faith's reach. And the third is faith's resuscitation. So firstly, faith's request. Follow along as I read from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. It says this, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, speaking of Jesus, went with him. Well, for those familiar with Mark's gospel, this is not an unfamiliar scene. By this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has pronounced fame. He's healed many, he's confronted demons, and he's even confronted the religious leaders. He's not some obscure figure. And Jesus now, as he read in, chapter, in verse 21, is back in Jewish territory having been in the Gentile territory where he ro uh, drove out legion into herds of pigs. Shockingly, in that instance, Jesus was chased away by those in the Decapolis. 
But on this side of the lake, there's a substantial crowd desiring to see Jesus. But what is most astonishing is that Mark tells us that a ruler of the synagogue, Jairus by name, sees Jesus and falls at his feet. And he begs him, he asks him earnestly that he might make his daughter well. I was just thinking in preparation of this text of your special location here right next to a synagogue. Imagine a man coming from there begging you for help, asking you for, to, to speak about Christ. That would be a very similar situation to what we have here. We have a ruler of the synagogue coming to Jesus. Those of us with young children can certainly relate to this text. Those times where we wake up in the middle of the night and your child has a croupy cough or a raging fever. Our hearts begin to agitate, don't they? What is wrong with my child? Do I need to take him or her to the emergency room? Well, for Jairus, this is what's happening right now. Death, he says, is knocking at the door. With trembling in his voice, he implores Jesus, come and make her well that she might live. So far, Jesus has met nothing but antagonism and conflict from the religious leaders. Ironically, they are the ones, as Psalm 2 tells us, that are raging against the Lord's anointed. But Jairus stands out from his companions. Jairus is different. Friends, in a modern pluralistic world with many religions and worldviews out there, seeking to follow Jesus will certainly appear as odd and as shameful in the eyes of others. Jesus? You, you follow that man? You, you read the Bible? Wait, that outdated book? Surely not. We sense Jairus' desperation. The socially respectable one is willing to humiliate himself before Jesus. He's not concerned about what the crowds think. Friends, benefiting from Jesus, if we are following him, certainly requires us, in one sense, to humiliate ourselves. This Christianity thing is folly in the eyes of the world. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul said? Record to trust in the message of a man who was helplessly murdered on a Roman cross. In Paul's own words, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Ours is a life that doesn't make sense to the eyes and the hearts of those blinded by sin and intoxicated with self. In this sense, Jairus here is an example of faith. He's an example of faith for us to imitate, for us to copy. Faith in Jesus and his promises are a matter of trusting, of relying, of giving our all to this man Jesus and not holding anything back, not keeping something in the bank stashed away just in case Jesus doesn't work out. We cannot hold Christ in one hand while holding works righteousness in another. We cannot hold Christ in one hand and white supremacy in another. We cannot hold Christ in one hand and ancestor worship in the other. I wonder, is your faith in Christ characterized by this same zeal? By not worrying about what the crowds think? Brothers and sisters, our faith needs to be characterized by neediness, by our dependence upon God. This is faith's request. It lays all at Christ. It realizes that without Him, we are all hopeless in one sense. And so, as we read, Jesus agrees, and they make their way to the house of Jairus. Death is standing at the door, and this young girl faces her end if there is no intervention. 
And so as to be expected, the, the news of this dying girl livens up the crowds and they begin to follow Jesus. And you can picture them all bumping into one another as though at an overcrowded flea market. But it's precisely here, in this march towards Jairus' house, that the story comes to a grinding halt. It's here, however, that we, for our purposes this morning, see our second point, that of faith's reach. Faith's reach. Read with me in verses 25 to, tw to 34. It says, And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he, Jesus, said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Well, Mark introduces to us this unnamed woman. She has been afflicted for some 12 years. And just like Jairus, she is desperate. And her faith in this man Jesus spurs her to reach out and to touch his garment in order that she might be healed. Mark vividly describes her suffering in verses 25 and 26. It's a sad and an awful life. This discharge of blood relates to some kind of menstrual complication. Her existence is wretched. It's a life of exclusion. It's a life of shame, perpetual suffering that knows no relief, no rest. And the inner turmoil of this physical suffering is equally matched with the outer stifling of her human existence because she would have been isolated from others with few to comfort her in her suffering. Her miserable portion included not just the physical pain, not just the social agony, but her condition also left her in a constant state of uncleanness. According to God's word, she would have been ritually unclean. Leviticus chapter 15 and verse 19 to 21 tells us that a woman was unclean for seven days after her monthly period. But if she had protracted a gynecological problem, as this woman seems to have done, she would remain unclean throughout its duration. Friends, this would have prohibited her from worshipping with God's people. Anyone who would have come into contact with her during this menstruation would be banished themselves until evening themselves being made unclean. This is not so much God-hating woman as much as it is a picture of God wanting His people to be a set-apart people, not just outwardly in appearance, but also inwardly. You see, these purification rites communicated the severe nature of sin and of our spiritual defilement before God. It was real. It could spread. Separation from God meant death. In one sense, Jairus and the woman here with the hemorrhage could hardly be more different from one another. Both in sex, in status, in public recognition, 
even their approach of Jesus is contrasted. Jairus earnestly yet publicly bows before Jesus, inviting him to his home, saying, Come, heal my daughter. But the woman, on the other hand, she's a social outcast. And she sneakily and shamefully, with much embarrassment, reaches out to touch Jesus. Friends, from this we learn that all are welcome to come to Christ. God shows no partiality. Disabled or able-bodied, black or white, young or old, rich or poor, Christ invites every single person to come to Him. But her suffering is not all that we know about this woman. Because in verse 27 and 29, we see that she remarkably exemplifies faith. She is willing to risk all, to risk further shame and disgrace in reaching out to touch Jesus. We can almost hear her saying, if, if what I've heard about this man is true, then no amount of shame can outweigh the bliss of healing and of rest, even salvation, that I would receive from this man. And so she secretly reaches out to touch his garment amidst the crowd, no doubt passing her uncleanness to every single person that she passed. Friends, this is faith for you. This is how Mark puts forward faith in his gospel. Faith is dramatic and it risks everything. It is a matter of persistence in spite of impossible odds. Essentially, although vastly different, her concern is the same as Jairus's, isn't it? She wishes to be made well, to be made whole. And what is the result? Immediately, we are told, the flow of blood is dried up and she feels in her body immediate healing, immediate relief. And so faith's reach secures renewed life in the person of Jesus. And what happens next must have been particularly terrifying for this woman. She thought she could touch him without him knowing. But Jesus stops, turns around and says, Who touched me? We can sympathize with the disciples here who suggest that this question is ludicrous. Who touched you? Jesus, uh, everyone is touching you. What kind of question is that? But verse 30 appears to be quite strange to us as if Jesus was not in control of the power leaving his body. Debates about Jesus' foreknowledge and the sovereignty of God, these are secondary matters uh, you know, to the narrative's emphasis. Because the emphasis of this story is that Jesus wishes to make an example of this woman in the good sense of that phrase. You see, friends, being a Christian is not about quick fixes, divorced from actually following Jesus. It's not about simply having our needs met. I'm not sure why it is that you've come to church today, why you've lifted up your voice in song, or why you're subjecting yourself to almost an hour of preaching. But following Jesus is not like part, it's not like joining a local gym. It's not like the contracts that we sign that are temporary, and that we sign them because they suit our likes and our dislikes. Yes, Jesus can and he does meet our needs, but that is always secondary. Because first and foremost, we must know him. And that is what we see in our text here. Jesus does not scold this woman in her quest for healing, but he does want to ensure her that she knows who he is. In this sense, following Jesus is about, well, Jesus. It's about him being known by him and following him, not simply taking of his benefits and then leaving. Not crafting our own ideas of what discipleship looks like on our terms. Doing the things only we like to do and avoiding all those things that are uncomfortable and difficult. No doubt, a great test of our following of Jesus 
will be reflected in our relationships with others. Because it can be very easy to just hide our relationship with Christ, right? If we remove ourselves from others. But consider this. What are your relationships like with others? Start with your spouse. Your parents. Your children. Are we happy to always take but never give? Are you always setting the agenda? Are you always insisting on your own way? What about your relationships with your fellow church members? Is your greatest desire to do them spiritual good? To contribute to the needs of the body? To ensure that this gathering of Christians here at Central Baptist Church are becoming mature in Christ? Does that desire consume you? Does that desire fill your prayers? You see, friends, these matters ought to define us because they flow out of knowing Jesus and following Him, obeying all that He has commanded us to do. We, like this woman, must come to Jesus in order to follow and obey Him, not simply to receive what He offers, only to run away from the life that He calls us to. No doubt the thought of meeting Jesus explains her fear in verse 33. We're told that she comes in fear and in trembling and falls down before him. It moves her to act in just the same way that Jairus did. She falls down and she tells Jesus the whole truth. The whole truth would no doubt have been her situation, the disease that she had suffered from, her plight and the healing that she had now received. She may be fearing Jesus because of the great embarrassment of the situation. Touching Jesus, as we said earlier, would have made Jesus ritually unclean. But her response here is just another example of risk, life-risking faith. The object of her desire, friends, although it entails having her needs met, is the living Christ coming out into the open as a woman defiled by her 12-year-long disease, speaking up to the Christ, confessing her faith's reach towards the Son of God. This was a life-risking moment. But Jesus, like Israel's God, speaks tenderly to her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He informs her for the reason for her healing. It is your faith, dear daughter, child of God, that has made you well. It is your faith. Faith not in some superstition, but faith in me. What matters most, as I said yesterday for those who are here, is the object. It's the direction to which our faith is aimed. Hers is a trembling and a fearful faith. Yet the object is Christ. And so it could never be more sure. And so it is with us, brothers and sisters. We, like this woman here, are called to a trusting, a dependent love and obedience. This is the biblical meaning of faith. It's not merely intellectual assent. It's not merely being able to quote the Bible. But it must grab all of us, our affections and our desires. Faith in Christ's goodness, in His power. This is a gift from God, by the way. Faith then becomes the very means, it's the very vehicle that transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. There's much to learn from Jesus here. That's why I love reading the Gospels as we get to see Jesus in flesh and blood. Look at your Savior. Look at His response to those in suffering. What is our response to those in their suffering? 
Are we marked by the tenderness of Jesus? Of him who will not break a bruised reed or quench a faintly burning wick? Better still, the, the question we should first be asking ourselves is, are we even aware of the suffering that goes on around us? Do we know the ills that plague our brothers and sisters, whether sin or physical pain or financial need? Friends, we cannot, like the world, lay further burdens on those who are suffering. We can and we should point them to what Christ has done. We are to be like Christ who, instead of heaping further weight and obligation, instead lightens the load of suffering, pointing them to the one whose yoke is light. And like him, we are to alleviate whatever suffering they might be afflicted with. You see, the result of God's grace and his power is always peace and healing. We should not miss the significance of this, friends. That which was lost at Eden is here being restored. The peace given to this woman is shalom. It's that peace that all humanity needs so desperately, and it's the peace that can only come from God. Jesus' reassurance and his blessing to this woman here, go in faith, be healed, go in peace, be healed of your disease, this reassurance, commonly we read of it in the Old Testament. It's the peace of Yahweh poured out freely to those who come to Jesus, who come to the seed of Abraham, the one in whom all the nations will receive blessing. Here he is. Here is the Christ. Here is the one in whom God's peace and blessing is received. You see, friends, the idea of healing here carries with it the idea of saving. In fact, what stands behind the word heal is a Hebrew word, and it's a variant of the Hebrew name Yeshua, Joshua, right? So in one sense, the desire for healing to be saved yeah, sorry, the, the desire for healing is the desire to be saved. It's the desire for wholeness, for renewal, for God's peace. It's the desire for Jesus himself. And Jesus wishes to assure her of this great and wonderful truth. And so as Christians, it is also our task to assure the lost, the hurting, of this great truth of Jesus, that salvation and healing and peace is ultimately found in Him. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you think you are, but you're not 100% sure. Have you realized that the things in this life, they seem so attractive, don't they? Money, Status, pleasure. They seem to disappoint in the end, don't they? There's still something missing, isn't there? Well, the Bible tells us that this is to be expected because the thing we most need is not a thing, it is a being. It is our Creator. It is the one that we have been separated from because of our rebellion against His rule. I'm here to tell you that the true peace that you seek in this life can only be supplied by God, by the one who made you for himself. Again, as the church father Augustine once said, speaking to God, he says, You made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Jesus himself would say this in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Friends, this is the direction to which our faith should be aimed. And it's this direction that we should encourage others to move towards, towards Christ. Maybe you've been wondering about Jesus' lack of compliance with the purity regulations that governed Israel. Well, friends, Jesus' word of assurance here to this woman strikes a crucial turn in the bigger picture of cleanness and uncleanness. 
As Mark will later tell us in chapter 7, Jesus' arrival marks a changing of the times. New wine is not for old wine skins, he tells us. Jesus turns the purity rituals on their head. Uncleanness is no longer a matter of outer physical condition of a person, but it is a matter of the inner human character, a matter of our hearts. This means that the likes of pigs, women with menstrual diseases, lepers, the deceased, are no longer things that are untouchable. Friends, this is the good news of Jesus, that he has come to extend the good reign of God. He is the true and the better Adam who has come to restore creation. And this is what true faith reaches out for. It reaches for the one in whom peace and healing can be found. It reaches toward Jesus, the one in whom creation is made new, the one who unites both heaven and earth. So we've seen faith's request. Interrupted by faith's reach. And Mark has sandwiched the story of the woman with the hemorrhage in between the looming death of Jairus' daughter. But it is to Jairus' daughter that we now turn. We see here faith's resuscitation. Faith's resuscitation. Follow along as I read from verse 35 to the end of the chapter. It says, while he was speaking, this is Jesus, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talita kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Thus far. Well, as readers of Mark's Gospel, we are to picture the two instances of the word daughter occurring at the same time. As Jesus is blessing this older daughter with Yahweh's shalom, news from Jairus' house is that another daughter, a younger one, has died. Jairus' servants depict unbelief. It's understandable. Why trouble the teacher any further? Friends, as I said at the beginning, the, the matter of belief and unbelief, of faith and doubting, is a very central part of this story. In many ways, Mark forces us to ask the question, what is the nature of faith? We can imagine Jairus at this point, devastated, perhaps even feeling angry at this woman. Yes, this woman had an affliction, but my daughter is dying and is now dead. What matters most in these desperate moments is where and to whom we look. Jesus abruptly responds to this dreadful news, and the word here for overhearing could also be translated as ignored. Unbelief is challenged with its opposite, belief. Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. 
In this sense, Jesus caused Jairus to observe God's grace in the life of the woman that he's just healed. Jairus, look there. Believe. Do not fear, my friend, only believe. And so the healing of this woman is itself a reversal of death's hold on her life. And so her healing stands as a pledge for what Christ will do to his very own daughter. In fear and trembling, this woman took Jesus at his word, the word that she had heard about him, and she believed. Friends, true faith is only ever in response to God's word, the word of Christ. Again, the Apostle Paul tells us clearly that faith, it comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10, verse 17. Only Christ's word, faithful and true, ignites faith in its hearers. And it is through this faith that Jairus and that we are called to. Will we take Christ at his word? When it's difficult. When he calls us to do something contrary to our own desires. When it comes to our own ideas of sexual expression how to use our money, where we are to place our political hopes, will we take Christ at his word? We read that they arrive at the house to find a commotion of people wailing and weeping, as was the custom of the Jews. Historically, we know that mourners were required to be hired at funerals, but Jesus says that she's not dead. She's just sleeping. They mock and they scorn and they laugh at him. The impossible is thought to be out of the question. This is the fear and the unbelief that Jesus warned about. You see, friends, Jesus actually excludes these scoffers from the miracle that is about to take place. This is because miracles, the manifestation of Jesus' true identity, cannot and does not save anyone. Jesus' deeds are no more fantastic than his word, than his promises. But if we only find his deeds to be fantastic and not his teaching, then we will find ourselves quite separated from his power, from his deeds, from his kindness, from his mercy. You see, we can no more have a Christ without words than we can have a house without foundations or an alphabet without letters. The gospel is simply good news. It is good information. It is truth to be published. And no amount of deeds can set forth in detail and with clarity what God has done in Christ. And so it's fundamentally in the word of Christ that God's power rests. That's because God's word is an extension of himself, of who he is. When God speaks, God acts. And my concern for those who call themselves Christians is, are we known as people of this book? You see, God's word is the factory where faith is produced. Our battle against sin is overcome greatly when we behold Christ in God's word. It's when we spend time gazing at Jesus that we change from one degree of glory to the next. It's in looking into God's word that we see sin for what it is, rebellion and death. Are we known as people of this book? Whereas some of you will be familiar, the reference here to the young daughter sleeping functions as a Christian metaphor for death. This is because death is not the final end for the Christian. Whatever fears we may have about death, it is not the final end. Again, we see the tenderness of Jesus in verse 41. He utters these words, Talita kumi which is Aramaic for little girl, I say to you, arise. As immediately the blood dried up in the woman with the hemorrhage, so too does the little girl rise from her bed of lifeless existence. She is resuscitated. She is brought back from the dead. 
Friends, we have here another instance of Jesus defying matters of ritual. Because by taking his little girl's hand, Jesus would have become ritually unclean. But what we have here is a wonderful picture of Jesus sharing in her death. Jesus partaking in her uncleanness. Jesus stepping into her curse of death in order to deliver her from it. Friends, the life of Jesus Christ is one in which all of God's purposes throughout Scripture come to a climax. Paul tells us in Ephesians that Jesus has been set forth as a plan for the fullness of time to do what exactly? To unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. But before this world can be restored, before this world can be united again with God, heaven and earth to be united in Christ, Jesus must be vindicated as the true Adam. But for in, order, for, for, in order for that to happen, he must first die. He must carry the curse of humanity. He must enter into our suffering and take upon himself our curse. He must take upon himself our sin and our separation from God that we experience in order to liberate us and bestow the promises of Abraham. Jesus must walk to Calvary and there the maker of all things, the perfect, the sinless one who authored life himself must himself give up his own life. He must be destroyed only to restart God's creative purposes so that in his resurrected life, heaven, God's dwelling, God's reign might again be united with earth with sin's effects reversed. And so this resuscitation of Jairus' daughter is just a small sample, it's just a small picture of the final resurrection that Jesus promises to all who come to him in faith and repentance. It's a preview of what he will do at the end of time when Jesus will take us by the hand and say, Arise. On that day, it will not be in secret, but every eye shall see him. Even those who mocked him on that day will see him, and they will mourn this time for themselves. Friends, which mourning will you be part of? Will you mourn over your sins today and repent of your iniquities, turning to Christ in faith to save you on that last day and to bring you into his new creation? Or will you harden your heart and then be left to mourn your eternal suffering? A death in which you will never be comforted. A death that will know no relief, no mercy, no grace, no peace from God. This is the resurrection hope that we Christians live for. Yes, death in this life will swallow us all, but for Christians, Jesus, who himself has conquered the grave, will triumph over it on the last day. Sin, Satan, and death will be destroyed. And here lies the down payment. Here lies the surety of what God has done in Christ. This resuscitation is both a deed of compassion, but it is also a pledge. It's a promise of the conquering power of Jesus over death and unbelief. As Jesus said, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe if you want to be a part of the, the kingdom of God. Turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. He is the greater, the better Adam who reverses the transgression of the first. He brings life back from the dead. Friend, won't you be found in him? Won't you be found in Christ today? Come to Jesus today if you have not already. Today is the day of salvation because Christ is the only hope for us to be rescued from sin, from Satan and the death that awaits us all. To conclude, in verse 43, we see that Jesus charges Jairus to silence. 
it seems an impossible request. How do you hide the life of, of, of one that's been brought back from the dead? Nonetheless, amazement seizes them all. This is Mark's Jesus, the powerful Son of God. And from this narrative, we've seen that Jesus is the Son of God, and he is Lord of both disease and death itself. Nothing is beyond Christ. But not only that, Mark has brought us into the classroom, as it were, to observe and to learn about the connection between faith and healing. Faith in Christ, then, is trusting, obedient, and loving dependence on God. This is what is needed if we are to enjoy and be a part of God's kingdom. If we are to, go, if we are to be going, apart, going to have a part in the resurrection on the last day. And so it is to Jairus and indeed to us, brothers and sisters, that Jesus utters these words, Do not be afraid, only believe. This is precisely the message given to the woman at the empty tomb on the third day. And it's ultimately the message of ultimate hope, of resurrection hope. A promise from Jesus to every single person here who would deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the life of Christ, which exhibits your glory and your power over all things. Lord, there is no hope except in Christ. We praise you that we could stand here and sing songs like you will hold us fast, because we know if it was up to us, we would have no grip on you. But Lord, you're the one who holds us fast. You're the one who provides faith. You're the one who comforts. You're the one who speaks tenderly to your people. I pray that you'd have encouraged us this morning through your word. Lord, that we would place our ultimate hope in the resurrection. In your spirits enabling us to live in such a way that is pleasing to you. Oh, Father, help us to come to you humbly. To reach out to you in faith to trust in your gospel, to save us, to transform us, and to give glory to your name. Speak to those who are discouraged this morning. Lord, rebuke those wandering into darkness. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Part us with your blessing, we pray. Amen.